is it just me or is it hot in here? <laughs> so obviously uh, we're having some, some issues with our facility today. I'm so thankful that doesn't hinder our worship. Um, I realize it's going to be a little warmer in here, so we're making adjustments this morning to our schedule and everything um, because we want to gather as a church and worship. And so um, we're going to continue in worship this morning through the preaching of God's Word. So I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to open to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is where we're going to be this morning. As we turn there, I want to stop and acknowledge that this week was one of those weeks that impacted probably every person in this room. Unless you, you kind of disconnected this week from the news, you've been familiar with what happened in Uvalde, Texas, and the shooting that took the lives of 19 children and two teachers. And so um, it is right for us as God's people to always stop and to pray, especially when we gather corporately like this, to make intercession for those that are suffering. Um, to also to think about ways that we can do something about gun violence. Um, that's something that's a problem in our own city, and so we understand gun violence. And so just thinking about those issues, but also thinking about how we can minister to families and, different, and, and loved ones during this time um, of those that lost loved ones. And so will you go to the Lord with me in prayer this morning as we make intercession um, for the city of Uvalde, Texas, God, this morning we stop, and together as a church, God, we, we lament what happened this week in Uvalde, Texas. Lord, we know that the, the plans of the evil one are to still kill and destroy. And so, Lord, we look at something like this, and we know that at its root, God, it's satanic. It's what the evil one wants. He wants for there to be the loss of life and for there to be the loss of all hope. And so, Lord, we know that right now there, there are 19 families grieving the loss of a precious child. And there, there are two families, God, that are grieving the loss of a, of a wife or a sister or mother. And so, Lord, we, we make intercession for them this morning. God, you are the God of all comfort. And so, Lord, we ask that in your perfect ability to comfort those who grieve and those who mourn, that you administer to them in ways that only you can. Lord, I pray for us as a church that we, we would be generous to those. God, I've been so touched as I've seen how different GoFundMe accounts have been set up to benefit survivors. And so, Lord, I pray for just faithful management and administration of those funds so that those that have been impacted are cared for. But Lord, nothing will replace the lives that have been lost in those, those absences, Father, and the brokenness, Father, that families will experience, God, for the rest of their time on earth because of this. So Lord, we come to you broken, broken over the gun violence in our country, broken over gun violence in our own city, Lord, and we ask that you would give us hearts of compassion and also minds of wisdom, Lord, that as we take up these issues of gun rights and other things like that that can make a difference, Lord, in these sorts of things, Father, that we would be mindful of your word, that your word would come to bear on everything that we think, everything that we do and say. Because it's not about what we think is right, Lord. It is what you have established as right and true. And we know that you desire to protect the innocent. You are the defender of life. And so, Lord, we join with you in your 
defense of life and and in your compassion and care for those who suffer. So Lord, please comfort this city. Father, please heal, heal these families. And Father, do it all in such a way that only you receive the glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thank you for being a church that prays in these moments. You know, death is where we find ourselves in the scripture as well. When we finish up 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 31 ends with Saul and his son Jonathan being killed in a battle. And then 2 Samuel goes right into the story unfolding of what then happens to the rest of Saul's family, his other sons. His other sons, ultimately in the first couple of chapters of 2 Samuel, they die. And so you have all of this death that's kind of surrounding the opening chapters but there's hope. Something's coming. And so one of the things that we've been careful to do as a church during this time is to establish some, some significant markers of this, the full story of First and Second Samuel. And so um, I didn't have that in the notes, guys, but if we can bring that up on the screen, um, our, our little sing song of what we're doing as a church, that it starts with Samuel, stalls with Saul, surprises with David, sings of a call, and all of it ends with signs of the fall. These are the five major movements that we see in First and Second Samuel. So let's practice this one more time. Starts with Samuel, stalls with Saul, surprises with David, sings of a call, and all of it ends with signs of the fall. This is what we're looking at. And today we find ourselves in the fourth major movement of the text, and that's that it sings of a call. What does that mean? Well, there are some songs in Scripture that carry on down through the generations. A lot of the the hymns that we sing, a lot of the praise songs and the choruses that we sing today are the songs that were originally penned thousands of years ago that we continue to echo today. Their, Their voices echoing through our own even into this moment. And so that's how God's Word is. If you think of all of God's Word in some ways as a song that carries on through the ages, that we today continue to sing that song and to hear its words and allow the message of that song to penetrate and pierce our own hearts, to give us hope and to give us orientation. You know, it's many times a song that gives orientation in the most disorienting of periods. It's significant that when we look back in our own nation's history and we look back and we see the difficulties of wars and of other things that have gone on. And we think about on this weekend of celebrating Memorial Day and thanking God for the lives of those soldiers who gave the ultimate sacrifice of their life for those American principles, for for our nation and for our freedom and for the freedom of other people's. We remember when we look back and we see the history captured at different moments, that there were often songs that accompanied some of the most difficult and disorienting periods. You look back and you read some of the biographies of those that were made prisoners of war and they would have to suffer in camps. It was often songs, songs like Amazing Grace that would give orientation to those that were believers, even as their lives were ebbing away and they were suffering from starvation and from mistreatment. It was songs that carried them along. It was songs that sustained Jews that were held captive during World War II. In the Holocaust, 
It was songs that they would sing of the scriptures of their faith that oriented them to God and especially of those that were believers to be oriented over and over again by the words. You look back further in our, in our own history as a nation and it was slaves that would often be found singing spiritual songs in the midst of their captivity, in the midst of their slavery in order to orient them to the Lord and to fix their eyes on the hope that one day there would be one who would set them free. And perhaps it's the American slave that better than any other person captures the heart of Israel and communicates the truth, the truth that there was hope bound up in a nation and in a people that one day there would be liberation, there would be freedom, there would be the release of the captive that is captured here in this passage today that we see God giving a promise made of one who would come. You see that call, sings of a call, is the call that one day, one day there would be one who would come, who would fulfill all of the promises that God had made to his people. People who found themselves in disorienting and chaotic times, a promise that one day one would come from this family line, David, that we read about today, one who would come and would rule forever and ever and would be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. To fast forward up to the passage that we'll give our focus to in 2 Samuel chapter seven today, starts off in chapter one with the response of David to Saul's death. He tries to honor Saul, an acknowledgement of his his conviction that the sovereignty of God for who was ruling and reigning during that time was the Lord's. God decided who was on the throne. And so he could trust and honor God's previous servant, even though that servant had been bent on taking his own life. Chapter two, David becomes king of Judah, but that's not without opposition and difficulty. There are some of Saul's sons still living But then we turn into chapters three and four and we see the death of some of these sons and we kind of hear a a mention, if you will, of a a grandson named Mephibosheth who we'll see again next week. But then in chapter five, we see that David becomes not only king of Judah, but king of Israel. And these things are established. David moves the ark in chapter six. All of these things being signs of what this king would be, of how he would lead the people of God. And then there comes a moment for David where he looks and he sees that he lives in a really nice house, but God, symbolized as being present with the Ark of the Covenant, lives in a tent. And David has this thought. He says, why should I live in a house, really nice place, made out of cedar and God has to be in this temporary dwelling, this this tent where he's been traveling around with the people of God ever since the beginning of the establishment of the people of God in the wilderness. And we see that then in his desire to do something for the Lord, God's servant, Nathan, says, do whatever's in your heart, but then God comes to Nathan and speaks to him in chapter 7, 
And I want to begin in verse 1 just to read on down through the chapter. And so I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning as I read from 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. God's Word says this, When the king had settled into his palace, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, Look, I'm living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside, inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, Go. Do all that's in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time that I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I've been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all of my journeys and with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken one word, to the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? So now what is this that you say, that you are to say to my servant? So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth, I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done since, ever since the day that I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows of mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed it from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported all these words in this entire vision to David. We pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray that today, as we give our attention to your word, and we hear this promise made, this song sung from you, the Lord, that it will strengthen our hearts and focus our minds on Christ Jesus and all that is ours in him and that he alone is our freedom in this life. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. You see, this communicates a call for one who will be distinct from those before him. The passage, you, you can't miss it. It is steeped in God's grace. Notice that, that God communicates to his people that I have been with him intense by my choice. At any moment, God could have said, build me a house, and he would have certainly been within his rights to have done so. But he never did that. And why is that? Why is it that God was content to be in a tent? Because his people were intense. God demonstrating from the beginning of the history of, the, of the, the mass exodus of his people out of Egypt, that he wanted to be the God who was with his people. He wanted to be the God that led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He himself wanted to be in their midst in a tent 
because that's where his people were and he wanted to be with his people. I mean, think about it. If they had built a temple for him, his nomadic people, and they would have left. They would have gone away from him. God would have stayed in a fixed location and his people would have wandered. But a promise had been made to Abraham to one day give him a land. And so God knew that his people were going to find a place with him in a fulfillment of his promise. And notice that this God reminds David, David who perhaps in this passage, it's not much of an inference to be made, is becoming a little bit exalted, maybe a little bit prideful. God, I'd like to do some things for you. Have you ever had that attitude? Thinking, what's something I could do for the Lord? It's an important reminder for us that there is nothing that the Lord has need of that we can supply. There's nothing that he says, man, it would really help me out if you could do this for me. You say, well, Chad, does that mean we're to do nothing for the Lord? No, you're to present your life, your life to him. You're to give everything about you, your affections, your life, your sin, everything to him. And then he picks you up. He remakes you. He recreates you in Christ. He makes you into a new creation. And you become an instrument of righteousness in a good and merciful God's hand to do with you what he will. And praise God to be used an instrument in his hand rather than thinking that I could ever pick up an instrument with my own hand and do something for God that would ever have any lasting significance. And if anything, it's an affront to him, almost suggesting that he has need of me and what I could do for him. But in grace, God speaks to David and he reminds him very directly, remember David, it was I who took you out of the pasture. You and I need that reminder. Some of us, we've grown up in church. Some of us, we've been a Christian for much longer than we weren't a Christian. We need the reminder, he pulled us out of sin and death. He pulled us out of the pasture and made us one of his sheep. We need the reminder that there was nothing about us that was righteous and good that God said, boy, if I could get that one on my team. God looked upon you like he looked upon David with grace. And then he brought you into his family. And then in this moment is God speaking in grace, reminding David of all of his grace. He then speaks a message of grace about one who would come. You see, this passage is a call for three things. Number one, it's a call for one, one person, one leader, one king that death cannot defeat. It's a call for one that sin cannot destroy, and it's a call for one that time cannot expire. Let's walk through each of these, beginning in verse 12. It's a call for one that death cannot defeat. You see, Saul was defeated by death. David, even here in verse 12, when your time comes, in other words, David, you too will die and you will rest with your fathers. But notice God says, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there's this song, this note, this 
verse that says, there's a king coming who will never die. His throne will continue forever. And certainly the people of God then could not have fully conceived that it would actually be one person that would rule and reign forever. But that's exactly what God was pointing to. They just thought, well, it would just continue to be sons of David. It would just be this continuing lineage. But all of that hope was lost. So that then when you turn over to the New Testament and you get to the genealogy of Jesus that opens up the gospel of Matthew that's in, in the second chapter of Luke and you look at the genealogies that are going on there, there's a lot of names you don't recognize. And you know what that means? There was a lot of hope that was lost. There was a lot of hope that was lost for the people of God. From this day when this promise was uttered, There have been many generations and all hope had been lost. There had been an exile where they had ceased to be a people of God and they had come back, but there was now Roman rule and all hope looked lost. But Matthew starts off the genealogy of the Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. You see that it's very significant, acknowledging that there would be one who would come and his name is Jesus, whose rule and reign would never end. And that's what we needed. You see, the reality for the people of God here is that they were putting all of their hope in a human leader. People, just by the nature of our hearts, we, we affix ourselves to human leaders. And when we do that, we always tend toward the error of overlooking the faults with that human leader and following them somewhat blindly wherever they lead. Almost kind of singing the chorus, wherever they lead, we'll go. Wherever they lead, we'll go. And that's what we do sometimes when we elevate a human leader and we put them on a pedestal and we forget that they are just a sinner saved by grace. You see, we could illustrate that with our own Southern Baptist Convention. Obviously, the news this week has been covering the report that has come out from Guidestone, Guidepost Solutions, an inquiry that we as Southern Baptists ask for to say, we feel like maybe things aren't being managed well for abused people, for the reports of abuse with the Southern Baptist Convention, with the executive committee. And so an inquiry was done and those reports are now seen very publicly this week. And I say, thank God. Thank God that these things are coming to light, that we can see where we are and refuse to stay here and to move forward with truth with transparency, with grace, with better practices, with better protections, with better integrity, because Jesus demands it and Jesus is worthy of it. And so we look at these things, but what we look at when we look at those reports are people, men that had been leading, that we forgot. They're just a man, just like you and me, just a person saved by grace. And at times decisions are made that really should be pushed back on. But sometimes when we elevate someone so high, we say, well, you really can't question them. You just got to go along. You just got to do what they say. And that's where we land ourselves in trouble again and again and again. And that would even be the case with David. You see, when we turn over and it ends with signs of the fall, even this one who had a heart after God's own, who wanted to do God's will, disobeys God and goes so far as to to commit murder to cover his tracks. But when you follow him blindly, 
and you do whatever he says, then you too become complicit, become complicit in his cover-up and in his crime. We need one. They needed one. They needed this promise that one day one would come that wouldn't die, that wouldn't demonstrate death itself, a consequence of sin, but one who would live forever, and his name is Jesus. But you say, but Chad, I thought Jesus died. I thought Jesus died. He did. He did die for your sin and for mine. But the hope that we have is that not even death can defeat the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You see, that's what the resurrection communicates, is that the king is victorious over death. He has defeated death. Death seemed to have won the battle over Jesus. He seemed to have lost. But the resurrection shows that he was victorious over death. You know what? That's good news for you and me. That's good news for the people of Uvalde, Texas this week. That's good news for people in New Orleans who have lost loved ones, is that death has been defeated by Christ. And you say, but it doesn't look like it. It didn't look like it on that Friday. It didn't look like it on that Saturday. It didn't look like it on the wee hours of that Sunday morning, but on the third day, he arose. And brothers and sisters, there is coming a day when Christ shall return and the dead in Christ shall rise. There will be a resurrection of the dead and then the judgment. And so our urgency today is to communicate this good news of the gospel so that in that day of the Lord, when the dead rise and they stand before Christ in the judgment, they will be pardoned from all of their sin because they have trusted in the righteousness of Christ, the one promised here, the one who defeated death. Second, a call for one that sin cannot destroy. You see, you keep reading in verses 14 and 15, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and blows from mortals, but my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, when I removed it before you. Sin, sin creeps in and it steals the health of those called to lead. Sin creeps in and it robs the integrity of the structures that God has ordained. Sin creeps in and it steals the joy that only his spirit can afford. When sin creeps in and it becomes tolerated and accepted and normalized within our bodies, it's like a cancer. It ultimately defeats the whole thing. Circling back to the example with the Southern Baptist Convention and the executive committee, we could look at it and say, this represents what will be a slow, but probably decisive death of the Southern Baptist Convention. You may have that perspective of, well, this is it. This is the beginning of the end. And that may be the case, but I have good news for you. The church of Jesus Christ has one who leads her, who is without sin, will ever be without sin, who never sinned and purifies his bride and makes her ready for the day of Christ. You see, denominations are our creation. Like there's something that we have created. 
The Southern Baptist Convention has only existed since the 1800s. And so it's important for us to acknowledge that these are somewhat recent advents. And before we despair, or maybe even before we say, well, let's just get out and just stand alone, we must recognize first who was supposed to be leading us all along. Who, who is the leader of the church? Is it me? Is this my church? No. This body belongs to Jesus Christ. I'm an under-shepherd. There is one good shepherd who shepherds your souls forever, and his name is Jesus. And sin has not infected him, though he himself paid the full penalty for your sin and mine. I'm a sinner just like you. I thank God for the respect that you graciously show me, but I am no different from you. I am a sinner saved by grace. I'm not the smartest guy in this room. I'm not the best preacher in this room. I'm not the best leader in this room. You say, well, Chad, what are you doing up there? I ask myself the same question. They're my first pastorate. And God, in his grace, established me and what it meant to pastor by saying, son, I do this for my glory. You're where you are for my glory. And that message is the same for you. You may feel like you've got the imposter syndrome going on. I don't know why I'm where I am. I mean, if people really knew the, just how messed up I am, they would, they would never follow me. They, they'd never let me lead my wife would leave me. My husband would leave me. My kids wouldn't respect me. All these things. And please hear me. If there's habitual sin in your life, repent and believe. Stop. Cease from those actions and turn away in faith to Jesus Christ, repenting and believing in faith that he can save you. But know this, wherever you are in this life, he's put you there for his glory. That's what he's making clear to David in this passage. I put you here for my glory. And my glory will ultimately be revealed in one who comes from your family line. One who will come later. And his name is Jesus. And he would be without sin. And he would never have the throne taken away from him like it was taken away from Saul. One who would always stand before God on your behalf. And then finally, a call for one that time cannot expire. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, when I removed it from before you, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. You see, there's a lot of names that I could start to list right now that were the greats of old. Men and women who led in Southern Baptist work who gave their lives in faithful service as missionaries, as presidents of entities, as professors, as pastors, as other evangelists and leaders. If I said their names and began to recall them to you today, you'd say, I've never heard that name. I never heard that name. I never heard that name. I never heard that name. And time has a way of even the greatest of us of erasing the memory of us for all time. It's a sobering thing to remember that this life that you and I live is but a vapor. And in so many ways, we, we strive to make our dent in the world. We want to be remembered. We think about what we want on our tombstone, our epitaph to be. 
But there is one that we do not remember because there's nothing to simply look back on and simply remember like he were a historical character. You see, we remember David today because the scripture captures the story of him, but he is no longer with us. The scriptures capture the story of Samuel and what he did for the people of God, but he's no longer with us. We remember him. The scripture captures the story of all of these things that different men and women did in the scriptures, but we remember them, but we don't simply remember Christ as one of many who did something for us in the past and look back like we do on Memorial Day, looking back, but instead we look up today, looking to one who is with us one who still rules and reigns actively over us today. You see, David no longer rules over the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He's gone. Solomon, who would build the temple, one of David's sons, he's gone. But there is one who is alive today, who rules and reigns right now over your life and over mine. Or does he? You see, that's the tension question that the gospel brings us to every single time. Does he? Because God made clear in his word that one day he was going to send his son. He was going to send one who was from the family line of David, and he did. He was going to send one who would defeat death, and he did. He was going to send one who would not be tainted like sin, like you and I are, and he did. And he was going to send one that time could not expire his rule and reign, and he did. Have you acknowledged what he did? Have you given your life to what he did? Have you given everything you are to the one who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? That's the question for you and me today. Because we don't simply look back on a memorial weekend at Jesus. Easter is not just a memorial service for Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. It is a celebration of the resurrected Jesus who is alive today. And he is powerfully alive today. And he is making intercession for you today. And he is holding out his arms to you today saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is calling you. You see, the song of the call for one would be ultimately the one who would call you and me into a relationship with himself for all of time, secure and free, recreated, a sheep of his pasture, found in his hand. He himself shepherding us and our hearts and our needs to the valley of the shadow of death. We can have rest in this life because he comforts us. His rod and his staff, they are with us. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for you are with us. You guide us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. All of these promises, all of this song, singing of a call of one that right now is calling you to give everything to him. And you say, well, Chad, I already did that. Do it again. Give your life fully to him again. You say, you get saved again. Give your life to him fully again. I think that's one of the great weaknesses of our faith is that we underestimate 
our commitment to Christ. We think that we're more committed to him than we are. We, we think we've given him everything when we haven't. And so the call for you and me today is to give ourselves fully to him. And for some of you, this may be a morning. I know it's hot and uncomfortable in here, but you might actually need to get up from your seat and in this song of response, come and just fall at the altar and extend your hands to him and say, I give you everything again. Because for some reason, you turned away from him. You started doing it. You started picking up the, mind, the mindset of David at the beginning of what, what can I do for God? You elevated yourself and God reminds you, I brought you out of the pasture. But there's some of you right now that are living this life as a lost sheep. Do you hear his voice calling you? Do you hear his sound of his voice saying, come, follow me. Come. Do you feel his hands picking you up? Because that's what this good shepherd does. He picks you up and he carries you. Do you hear the good shepherd? I want to invite everyone to stand in this moment. And you may need to come and just spend time at this altar worshiping and bowing before the Lord. You may need in this moment for the very first time to come and say, I want to follow Jesus and give my life to him. But don't tell me, tell him. Tell him he's alive and well and he's ready to receive you today. Father, I pray that in this moment of response that your spirit would be at work in every heart in this room calling us to follow you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. You respond now as God leads you in this moment.